season two. It's the last episode now. What's up, everybody? It's Rohati coming at you from Treaty 7 Lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I noticed all my guests are from Calgary, but we're going to shift that in season three. Just a little preview. But before we jet off from season two, we got to complete with part two with Dr. Manetta Bailey. In part one, we spent an hour talking about critical theory. We were talking about her work as a professor. In this episode, we take a moment to bring it closer to home. It's a time and age right now across this land, across many lands, where protests against anti-blackness are sweeping the country, the neighborhoods, the cities. And we're feeling the trauma Coupled with COVID, we're feeling the trauma in our bodies and in our skins, particularly for those who are people of color. There's some trauma that we're hanging on to, and that manifests itself. I think it's normal for us to realize we're still in a pandemic and to treat ourselves kindly. We talk about protesting and where that's going to lead us, a little bit about public policy and the hope. Is there hope? Is there any hope as we look at possible changes that things that are happening now and the momentum that has increased because of the protesting and the attention surrounding racism, is there hope that things are actually going to get better? So we talk about that and we talk about both the pragmatic shifts culturally and ideologically, but also the shifts that we need to do in our own hearts, whether it be from the model minority to just the average person on the street. What is it going to take and are we willing to do the work? So listen into this kind of conversation with Manetta and I. When we're talking about where God is moving and the magnitude of the push in a present day towards justice, man, I got to say that in my own body, I am like I was at... I went to Safeway. I think Safeway's all across North America. I went to the grocery store the other day and some dude, some white dude was flipping out about something. I don't know what. Masks? Liquor? I don't know. And like normally this wouldn't bother me. But I was like, I am not going to deal with this. Not even be in the same space. And I just left the grocery store. And like, as I was reflecting on them, like, whoa, what's going on in my body right now that I just cannot tolerate the baloney? Yeah. I can't tolerate the bullshit in, in life and world right now. And perhaps it's because I'm cultivating a stay-at-home philosophy right now <laughs> for months. <laughs> but let's be frank and, and share with me what you are comfortable with. After the violence of George Floyd, which was merely a catalyst, the straw that broke the camel's back. I was was saying that I released a book um, that I had written a a series on my blog that I put together as a free ebook, and I just changed the names. Everything else is the same. Yeah. Because the big thing three years ago, you remember? It was Charlottesville. And we're like, yeah. oh my God, look at all these white guys who went to Home Depot and bought tiki lamps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, we haven't seen pictures 
of the KKK out in the open like this. Uh, and then the media spent the next three years legitimizing the, or, or softening the blow by using new terminology like white and nationalists. But nothing changed in the time of Charlottesville. Well, nothing. The momentum didn't yield us the justice we were seeking. And then George Floyd and massive momentum. I've never, uh, did you grow up in Calgary? Like once uh, you moved here, was it Calgary the space? Edmonton first, then Calgary. I've never seen such a such momentum and protest of that scale. No. It was greater than, um, I don't know more, of course. And by of course, I'm saying that we don't care about indigenous yeah. protests. And by we, I mean mainstream. Yeah. It was bigger than, uh, what was the one where all the white hippies were? Occupy. Occupy, yeah. It was yeah. way bigger than Occupy. And I've this been is a to city. the Women's March. It was bigger oh, than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was bigger than the Women's March. And the Women's March was, was very big in, in, for example, D.C., Washington. Yeah, yeah. So that, was, that was large in the Me Too movement. But Calgary doesn't protest. And I said this in another um, podcast. Canada doesn't really protest. Yeah. But, man, we filled the streets. And that was just the culmination of a time where in my own body, to bring it in, home here individually I was feeling it and I'm not black right mm -hmm. I, I'm a brown body so I feel the effects of racism but I also can balance the line in my Asianness, a model minority but in my brownness it's I'm clearly dark <laughs> you know and it was too much yeah COVID all the social media stuff is too much. And I just started to feel it, the stress in my bones. Yeah. And it's only now that I hunker down that I can, let's say that I stopped functioning. That's not true at all. But man, I felt it. Yeah. I don't know if that was, I don't know what your experience was like through. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to give, it's kind of a cliche now to say 2020, but mm -hmm. there's been, I think, so we know directly leading up to George Floyd, there were a number of cases. Um, I forget the gentleman's name that was shot. Oh, it's Aubrey, Ahmed Aubrey. Ahmad Aubrey, yeah. Ahmad Aubrey. Then there was the Amy Cooper case, which for me, that was a bigger trigger <laughs> than anything, but for other reasons. Mm -hmm. And then, like I think in Canada, you know, we've had we've had the the pipeline protests, and and it really saddened me to see the rhetoric around the pipeline protests in February, and the fact that C Canadians just weren't getting why Indigenous people were protesting, and I, I was very saddened to see the mainstream response to these protests. And then, you know, just snippets of anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. the, and for me, that was just incomprehensible because, I mean, racism on the whole, is, 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 it's a pretty naive, ignorant act. But the, the, the logic behind randomly attacking Asian Canadians or Asian Americans because of this, like, I get, I, I, I get how it worked in, you know, how we created this, this, um, this um, enemy 
or, or certain people work to create an enemy and target. But for people to actually buy into that, that for me was the bottom level of stupidity because logically it made no sense um, as much as racism ever makes sense, which I understand it's it's pretty ignorant thing, as I mentioned. And then we had these series of anti-Black racism and, and then on top of COVID, and it was just draining. I think, and for me personally, it was just, you know, I, it was like, how low can humanity go at, in, in such a condensed period of time? This all happened in what? Months. Four, yeah. And I, I just think it was, it, and so for me, the, that, and, and other, I've heard other people reference this as well. So that the knee on his, on, on George Floyd's neck, not only was it symbolic of how black people and, and racialized people have been feeling like, you know, like just let us up, let us give us our freedom, give us our ability to move around, stop choking the life out of us. It was symbolic for that, but it was also symbolic to this, the, you know, the continually compiling of events, one on top of each other. And it's like, okay, can, can we get over this event? Can we get over that event? No, nope. in the middle of a pandemic, let's smack you with another event, right? And it was just like, I, I feel like humanity just wanted to scream, and we did. Mm. Because it was just like, just, I, I, and, and as I speak it, I can feel it again, like my body yeah. tensing up. It was yeah. just, it just felt so constrained. We were physically constrained in our homes, many of us, but it was like, what is going on in this world? Like really, what is going on in this world? What world are we living in right now? You know, and it's sick. It. And uh, sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. I think that the anti-Asian racism, it is kind of logical in a sense, but it's all, it was also good in a sense. That's sick. Here's why. Um, it's logical in the sense that white people think all Asians look the same. And so it doesn't matter if you're Korean or Japanese, you look Chinese to white folks, right? Yeah. And yeah. I know I'm, I'm making sweeping generalizations here. But it also reminded Asians that they're not the model minority, that there are yes. terms and conditions for you to play this game. And you want to act and play nice to receive the rewards of the model minority, which is usually in money or wealth. But at any moment, that could switch and come down on you in the form of anti-Asian racism, that yes. your body and your skin at any moment will be rejected. And that was a reminder to say that you tried so hard. Don't forget your place. Yes. Yeah. And so that's, the, that's my sick way of saying that, man. And, and like to the context of the church, like you guys have spent, you know, all of your time learning from white theologians, white leaders. You sing songs from white authors. The, like the whole experience is very white. Why are you doing that and losing your own voice? Yeah. So, so, sorry, I cut you off as you were talking more about uh, no. you know, post. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember that actor's name. He wrote a brilliant piece um, around that. that um, John Chu, Cho, am I pronouncing that incorrectly? I, I apologize. Um, 
he wrote a piece in the LA Times where it was like, yeah, it was just that reminder that as much as we attempt to assimilate or fit in, all it takes is one irrational thing. And you're reminded that you're, you're close, but not quite there. And, and I, I definitely get your sentiment. Here's why I thought the whole anti-Asian thing was so irrational. What does that have to do? Like, let's say that, okay, like COVID-19 originated in a specific place in China. What good does attacking anyone do to remedy this situation? And there's, there's where I thought the irrational action. I'm like, what are, what, just the irrationality of it to me. Like, what, what do you want to, what's that, sir? It's fair, it's fair. But then if you're fair of, but if you're afraid of the virus, you're attacking him. Like, if you're going to go down that path, you're going to, it's, it's even worse. So <laughs> it, I, it's just, I mean, it's it was fear. bizarre. It's yeah. just fear against black skin too. Yeah, just fear. fear. And um, yeah, so I, I, I absolutely can relate to, to this idea of feeling it. Having that short fuse that you said, you know, you just left the safe way and it's like, I can't, I can't even yeah. deal with and and particularly a short fuse um in relation to people not wanting to wear a mask i remember mm. at the very beginning of the protests and it just you know it's like people are protesting not wanting to wear a mask while we have people protesting someone losing their life mm. and for me this the, the audacity to say i have the right to put others around me at risk, that is a white privilege that is, for mm. me, there is no person of color, there is no black person that could protest their right to put someone else at risk. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If, we, mm. if we look at it that way, I'm like, no, we're protesting because we're, we're seen as the danger. Where do you have people protesting to be the danger? Oh, come on. Yes. And, <laughs> That's tweet number two. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, I, that, that was my frustration. And, and I, I, you know what? Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Uh, no, wear a mask. Please wear a mask. Yeah, but exactly. I'm not going to force you to wear a mask. Like I, we were, you know, I get that that's not the society that people want right now. But please don't protest your right to not wear a mask. Don't argue with people. If they, I, I, I just, once again, the logic escapes me. <laughs> I think some of the logic in the church around black lives. And again, this is, and I, I don't want to center this voice because I don't think it, it's, it's uh, dominant in any way, the rejection of black lives and, and what it stands for. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a decentralized movement, so it, it can vary, but the crux of it remains say, the same in that black lives matter and that there is needs to be demonstrable changes around po- uh, policy, around harm, denigration of black and brown bodies. That's not debatable. And the call to justice is one that every church needs to embody. And I've been a little bit surprised. I don't know how hopeful you feel right now. It's just in general, but a little bit surprised about how few white churches, and we don't call them white churches, we just call them churches, but how few white churches know what to do, um, how few have 
significant relationships with people of color. Like, yeah. oh my God, the number of white churches who, and it's worse to look inside for the token black family, right. but uh, just didn't have any relationships with anyone who yeah. could speak on the deluge of calls for justice. They had to find some token through the denomination, whatever. But uh, yeah, even your your university or mm-hmm. my alma mater, they <laughs> are struggling to say anything, and yeah. most are silent. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I'm so encouraged by the momentum, and I see that this is unique in this moment right now. I don't know what comes after it, though. Like, or rather, after, but like in this moment right now. How hopeful do you feel that there is going to be systemic change? Yeah. I, I'm very similar to you. I, I, there will be change, and I think we've seen change. It's like you mentioned, it's like nothing I've seen before, where um, all institutions, but including the church, are, you know, they, they're having these conversations. I think the reason I think I'm a little bit hopeful is because they refused to have these conversations before. You know, like the, you know, Black Lives Matter, no All Lives Matter debate, it's been a lot of times when I've had conversations about racism in church circles or when I've presented at faith-based conferences or whatever, I've, I've received the pushback of, well, you really should see yourself as Christ sees you. You're a child of God. You're not black. You're not this. You're a child of God. And I, my re- response is always like, I'm a black female child of God. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So it's always been that pushback to silence conversations. And, and if there's any hope, it's that the churches are recognizing how little they've done. And once again, not all churches. So, um, you know, speaking um, aggregated in the mall, which I, I, I get is problematic. But the churches that haven't paid attention to this, they're at least recognizing it. And they're making some attempts. Whether this is long-lived whether this is a, um, whether they think that, you know, we'll pay some attention, preach a few sermons, and then the issue is resolved, or verse, or do, are they thinking that it's something that's, you know, a quick fix, or are they really digging deep into challenging the things that they held to be true? And I don't know, I, I don't know how, I, I suspect some will, challenge their fundamental truths but i also know some won't so like you said i i I don't know where we where we come out of this i really i really don't know there's some hope that we will take some steps forward um i think we will and we already have yeah but you're you're someone who is now tenured in a evangelical school yes it's an institution Yes. And so you must have some hope. Oh, I, you know, so here's my hope. I'm not saying you're not hopeful, but I mean, like, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in the inside, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> I know. And, and we've had conversations about yeah, this. Yeah, about this <laughs> repeatedly. Being on the inside. Like, oh, um, <laughs> you sure about this? Yeah, I know. I sure? mean, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like, you have definitely felt a calling to be in the space that you are. And, and I'm like, yeah you have some power and and some strength do you know where my hope comes from mostly so two sources of Uh, hope jesus (laughs) it's always that's the faith in the fresh (laughs) wine podcast thank you for listening (laughs) 
<laughs> there we go. Um, no, in, all, in all seriousness, and this was even before this movement, I have some amazing colleagues who truly understand what it means to be an ally. And they're, and, and they're you know, colleagues at different levels of, of commitment to this idea of allyship, or whatever that, mm. that term means. But mm. there are some colleagues who are committed to continual learning. And because some of the questions they ask me, I get challenged and I have to be like, okay, hey, let me think about this. And this is a world I live in. And, and, you know, they're just committed to this. And that is really hopeful for me because as much as we speak about certain people in church circles not wanting to have these conversations, these are white men and women who have been pushing for these conversations. Mm -hmm. And they have invited me even pre- previous to, to this movement, this oh, most, this, yeah. they, they've invited me into those conversations. And mm -hmm. I, you know, that, that, that gives me hope. That, that matters. That certainly that makes matters. the workplace one that, that you can, you know, you don't have to, it's not going to kill you. It's not. Yeah. And, and with all, you know, I had a few colleagues who, and they know the space I live in. So they know, you know, especially at the beginning stages that this was a lot to handle. Mm -hmm. um, and they reached out to me and they were very, very gracious and said, you know what, I'm thinking of you. If that's all you need to hear, hear that. If you want to chat, I am free. I am willing. I am available. If you don't tell me to F off, I will do that too. And, and that, that meant a lot to, to have that kind I know I have that kind of support and, and not mm. only from colleagues, but you know, a few students as well who get the gravity of this situation. And that's, that's, that's where my hope is. Yeah. I think that you definitely need white folks who have the power to be in the mix of, of dismantling systems and, yeah. and creating a more equitable or more just future. I feel hopeful because I see a, I don't know if it's, yeah, it's probably generational. When I think about when I came as, mm. as a young, mm -hmm. young kid, toddler, really, and, and my dad, and I think of my dad who both of us were born in Trinidad and, and he's basically kept his head down and assimilated mm -hmm. and he knows he doesn't fit, but he's paved and, and offered space to me to be the loose cannon who is now Absolutely. spouting off on, on racism and knocking on the doors of, of the church. Um, so he has paved that path for me. And I wonder now of the generation behind me and behind us that are, and I'm talking specifically about people of color now, leaders right. of color, Christians of color, just oh. the next generation that they are figuring out what it means to be at the forefront. Yes. And yeah. to not merely survive in their own skin, but to thrive. Yeah. But to thrive. Uh, and so I'll use the church context because, you know, it's usually where I'm navigating, but I'm seeing, and, and I'm picking this up from ironically, the generation ahead of me which is important because mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we sit in the middle and mm -hmm. then there's one ahead and then two behind the generation ahead of, of us have said this and I've been very cognizant of the key leaders that I am done 
putting mm-hmm. in my energy, my efforts into trying to persuade, exist, converse with the white church. Mm. I'm done. Tried it. Almost killed myself. Exhausting. Lost my faith or whatever other piece. Mm. Do yourself a favor. Don't do it. And so that's probably where I tease you all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Like how long? It's uh, before they get, get you. Get out, Manetta, you know? get out. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it is a bad movie of get out. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to adopt that in an attempt to preview what the next gen can potentially do, of which I see some still have, they need to learn for themselves. They're in their white context, trying to, trying to bring change. And they're feeling right now that there is a possibility, a momentum for change. And they're going to find out in a year that nothing really changed. (laughs) Um, That might be cynical. (laughs) But I think we're in a space where the next gen are now reimagining POCs, what it means to lead at the forefront, not merely, and here's the other piece, siloed within their own ethnicity, because POCs, you know, we're good enough for our own people, but anybody else are for white folks? Ah, Yeah, yeah. No, you can't. Just look at who's leading our institutions. Like, give me a break. You can't do that. But there's a generation that's coming up, and also a generation of white folks who are awakening to their racism. Yeah. And their biases that, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. And, and IT's uh, our mutual friend, Tony Snow, too, who's in the United Church. Right. About the same stuff of, of navigating the institution. But systemic change from a Canadian landscape to take it out of the church now, though. You uh, listen to the three conversation, not three days, third day right now. And this mm-hmm. is the podcast and... and tend to not do that but the city of calgary has had consultations with the public on racism systemic racism yes and i've been listening man there's been some good stuff that's yes. come out. yeah oh some good stuff and some good critiques and if we use kendi who you know every white folk has now kendi's book and they're reading it mm. how to be a race anti-racist and and diversity has shifted that diversity training has now shifted into language of anti-racism training yes yes how to be an anti-racist and a big thing of candy is policy. So I, I would imagine as, you know, our provincial government adds more racist policy, but <laughs> I would imagine there will be some policy shifts, but I wonder how you feel from a sociological standpoint here of what it both takes and whether you feel hopeful that there will be systemic shifts across this land, neighborhood, city, province, country, um, as a result of this momentum calling for the end of anti-blackness or justice? I definitely, sorry, I do, I am hopeful. I, you know, there's been a lot of critique over uh, Calgary City Council's um, uh, consultations uh, last few days, but it's, it's also, it's something that we have never done. So let's think about the steps in the right direction. And I think even in going forward, I don't think that there's one right way. We're going to make mistakes. You know, it's going to be like two steps forward, one step back, five steps forward, five steps forward, one step back. Like we're going to, it's going to be, it's a journey and we have to be in this for the long haul and be willing to not, not, 
we're going to make mistakes. And I say we as a society and that's fine. Life is, there's no blueprint to life. Um, long haul though. Let's hang on to that. Long haul. Yeah. And no, so no. long haul. And, and so this comes back to, so in that way, I am hopeful that there's going to be some systemic change. I am absolutely a policy person because I do, I do believe that individuals orient to a policy in their workplace. So, you know, there's going to be, there has to be policy that says not an end. I've always been an advocate, not for policy that is, I call it the neoliberal colorblind policy, but outright anti um, racism policy. Mm, so policy that's, that's that, so good. Hang on, hang on. The neoliberal, <laughs> would, you, would you say the col- neoliberal? Colorblind policy. Colorblind, yes, yes. You know, yes, like yes. We're, we're an open opportunity employer, like that kind of soft language. Or I'm we're like, like okay. so woke that yeah. we made it. Look at yeah. how woke we are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that, that need. One thing that, that gives me pause in this climate is that we are so hung up on systemic racism. Not, and, and we're, I feel we're not doing, we're doing an injustice to the fact that racism operates at multiple levels. And racism is fed first and foremost by prejudicial ideologies. And those ideologies feed into a, a system of racism, but it also feeds into personal racism. And we need to, if we're going to change systemic racism, we need to focus on personal racism. And we need to focus on the ideologies that feed both of these um, manifestations manifestations of racism. Give me an example of that. that, that uh, that's so good because, I mean, I've always uh, unpacked racism as, um, uh, and I'm using... Uh, I can't remember where I'm using someone's reference here. Like Kendi would say you're either racist or anti-racist, but in terms of racism, it's power plus prejudice. Right. Power plus prejudice, which is not the dictionary definition, but it gives you a sense and of which it it can fall into the individual or it can fall into the system. Um, You're, you're taking it now into another space that that's kind of nuancing, not just system, not just uh, individual, but you're stretching into ideologies, calling them prejudicial ideologies. Give me, give me an example there and expand on take us to school again doctor <laughs> i would i would say it's an ideology that believes or supports the inherent um superiority of one group over the other and that can happen in very so when we think about that we think about the explicit ways whites only signs or you know like those explicit mm-hmm. ways but what are those implicit ways that we say, well, this is this, we, we believe that this is superior, whatever this is, to another. I'll give you, so, you know, one of the things that irks us black women that gets us all up in arms, um, a very simple, this is, this is breaking it down to the most simplistic form I can think of off the top of my head, but thinking about standards of beauty. Mm. And, you know, like just something simple as the, Blonde, straight blonde hair. That's the ultimate standard of beauty, right? Like that's an ideology. That's something we like, what do you want? To, like, what is the ultimate standard of beauty? Well, it's straight, long, blonde hair. So there's nothing in there that says that, um, explicitly says that 
uh, black women are not beautiful, but implicitly because black women naturally don't have straight long blonde hair, implicitly it's it that's that's what's being implied that you have this as the measuring rod as a standard an ideology of what's beautiful that everything else is problematic everything else is the mm -hmm. othered right mm -hmm. and so when if we think about any ideology that others an, another group because we, we we have the standard of what is correct what is right and and what is preferable and by uh, by process of elimination, all of these other groups feel lesser than um, in comparison to these are the ideologies that we need to think of. These are the ideologies that manifest in personal racism, but also manifest in systemic racism. Who is better suited as a, at a particular job? Or who, is, who do we want to represent us in this area? You know, like these ideologies of, of who is superior who, who do we, who do we, uh, like, when we, the, the belief system that feeds our ideologies that, who, who are we going to focus on when they walk into the store, mm. right? And, and so that would be that personal racism where mm. we racially mm. profile, but it's right. also that systemic racism where we racially profile, like, within the, system, the criminal justice system. Uh-huh. Would it be accurate for me to... So when you use prejudicial ideologies, I think some of the terminology I would use would be around cultural formation yeah. um, or, or just culture. Are, yeah. Am I talking about the same things? Yeah. That's synonymous? Well, our prejudices are, are developed by culture. Like cultures dictate what is desirable, what is advantageous, you know, what are the things that we like. So um, it, it just so happens that Globally, most of the culture, having been touched by colonization, um, the, a lot of the things that are deemed better are also associated with that Euro-American or Euro-European standard. Um, ideology flows into culture. Is that kind of the is there um, a hierarchy there? So, uh, ideologies are part of our culture. Part of the ideologies flow out of culture. Yes. Yeah. Um, final question here. When we talk about prejudicial ideologies and uh, cultural formation, how do we dismantle those pieces? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when we think about ideologies, ideologies make up a culture, right? It's part of culture. So, and, and, and if we think culture is... We have this dominant culture that represents this dominant narrative. As soon, in order to dismantle that, we have to look at the ideologies that feed into the culture, the underlying belief systems and value systems and all of these things that feed into the culture. And so one of the ways that I, I often tell students is the moment you find yourself expressing, and this can be like overt or covert, it can be explicit or implicit, expressing these prejudicial ideologies um just stop question it be reflexive you know like think about what am i saying what am i implying why am i doing that why am i thinking that why am i feeling that and yes it, it takes a lot of work initially but it, it becomes a way of life and to the point where you can prevent yourself from having these initial reactions and i know because i've, I've done i've done that work of questioning these things initially and, and, and it just becomes more obvious. 
in terms of that those personal ideologies. And then the way that, so if, if we think about the systemic changes, so we have the policies, but we also have people that have to implement these policies. Mm. And so unless we have people who are questioning themselves within mm. the institution, the policies can only do so much. Uh. So I, this is why I, I think we need to go at it both from that systemic policy level, but also from that personal individual level um, in order to see true lasting change. Yeah, for, for sure that there's the, um, the balance. I like your piece there of who administrates the policy that they yeah. need to be doing work as well. Uh, yeah. That's, that's such a good point, and and it it almost in a moment makes the work daunting. It's, it's very, very it much makes so. the work daunting, and like initially, it's like you're as you're talking about the the individual work which must happen too. Like that's that needs to be placed within the systemic work. But man, merely making policies that is not good enough merely talking about issues of race or reconciliation that's not good enough but it is the both work of the individual and the shared work of the community to right these systemic injustices that's what needs to be done and you know what as someone continually reminds me as I <laughs> I get in these moments where I go, ah, there's no hope. <laughs> yeah, I don't know same. if I've actually truly feel that way. I feel that because we believe in a God so big that there is hope to dismantle these God-sized problems. Mm. Um, and the church must be at the forefront of that. The church must yes. figure out its own sins before it can start calling on to the world and getting in there. Um, but we need to think about what it means to to pursue justice together but understand it's not our mantle to carry i remember you said that and that that a, a few months ago where i was at some event where you you said that and that sticks with me it does that stick was with me. that was our our service our online service because be, and I, and i felt this repeatedly and because i'm forgetful and maybe maybe you and you the, you, the listener as well, forgetful about we don't have to carry these things that yeah, no. God carries them. And it's almost like, ah. Exactly. I, I remind myself of that when, you know, you get overwhelmed. It's like, okay, I've done my job for the day. <laughs> I can sleep. You don't have to carry that. Yeah. And it's like an instant. I know for me, like, it's just an instant, like the, blood pressure goes down. It's like, Absolutely. no, I don't have to carry those things. That's, that's how God carries those things. Absolutely. And also to f- put this in perspective, this is like a problem that is how many centuries in the making. Yeah. You know, so it, it, there is hope, but this is why it's a long haul. It's, mm-hmm. There's a lot of undoing. Really appreciate Dr. Bailey's time to share some of her personal feelings and experiences in the academy and as a professor to teach us about critical theory, about narratives, about deconstruction, and for sharing some candid moments about what it means to have hope in this day and age and what it means to just hold the trauma of the world that is around us and 
whether or not there's hope. So thank you for listening in, and thank you to Dr. Bailey for spending the time. You can find her online. I think the best place would be her Twitter account. Her Twitter account is Bailey Moneta. That's it. At Bailey Moneta on Twitter. That's two T's. One B. This podcast is brought to you by Rolex. And no, it's not. It's not brought to you by Rolex at all. But if you would like to support the work here and some really exciting guests that are coming up in the next season, it is a tax receivable donation or deduction if you would like it. If you send it to Cypher Church, you can get the details at cypherchurch.com or rohati.com and you can connect with me online in the various social medias. Just look me up. I'm pretty much the only Rohati out there. I hope that this podcast gave you some, just that, hope that it's given you some ideas, but it's alerted you to the fact that one, you're not alone in the journey that you're on, that the task may seem daunting, but there are others who are facing and exploring the same things as you are. And as well, that there's hope, that there's hope that shifts and changes are happening and that you are a part of that. Whether you're a person of color, a Christian of color, whether you're white, all of those things don't matter when it comes to the commitment of enacting and embodying change. As I noted, and as someone else noted for me, that the weight of the world right now, it's heavy, but that's not your mantle to carry. And God wants you to be free of that burden. So without further ado, thanks for stopping in and we'll check you all in season three.